Friends, uh, let us read together the words of our holy God. You'll find these on the inside of your leaflet. Isaiah 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises up upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar, and your daughters are carried on the hip. Then you will look and be guided. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth of the seas will be brought to you. To you, the riches of the nations will come. Herds of camels will cover your land, your young camels from Midian and Ephah, and all from Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. All Kedah's flocks will be gathered to you. The rams of Naboth will serve you. They will be accepted as offerings on my altar, and I will adorn my glorious temple. Who are these that fly along the clouds like doves in their nests? Surely the islands look to me. In the lead are the ships of Tarshish, bringing your children from afar with their silver and gold to the honour of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendour. Foreigners will rebuild your walls and their kings will serve you. Though in anger I struck you, in favour, I will show you compassion. Your gates will always stand open. They will never be shut, day or night, so that people may bring you the wealth of the nations. Their kings lead a triumphant procession. For the nation or kingdom that will not serve you will perish. It will be utterly ruined. The glory of Lebanon will come to you, the juniper, the fir, and the cypress together to adorn my sanctuary, and I will glory the place of my feet. The children of your oppressors will come, bowing before you. All who despise you will bow down to your feet and will call you the city of the Lord, Zion, the Holy One of Israel. Although you have been forsaken and hated, with no one traveling through, I will make you the everlasting pride and joy of all generations. You will drink the milk of nations and be nursed at royal breasts. Then you will know that I, the Lord, am your saviour, your redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I'll bring you gold and silver in place of iron. Instead of wood, I'll bring you bronze and iron in place of stones. I'll make peace your governor and well-being your ruler. No longer will violence be heard in your land, nor ruin nor destruction within your borders, but you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun will no more be your light by day, nor the brightness of the moon shine on you, for the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Your sun will never set again and your moon will never wane. 
The Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of sorrow will end. Then all the people will be righteous, and they will possess the land forever. They are the shoot I have planted, the work of my hands, for the display of my splendor. I am the Lord. It is time I will do this swiftly. Amen. Well, welcome along to Trinity. Why don't we pray? Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that if we are in Christ, we've got a great future ahead of us, a new creation where we'll enjoy you forever. And yet, Father, today we're reminded that we have to choose to enter that creation. We have to accept Jesus' offer of forgiveness. Father, if we've already done that, please comfort us with the great future we've got ahead of us. But if we haven't chosen that, make us choose it today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When Disneyland opened on the 18th of July, 1955, it was a morning of huge excitement. A year earlier, Walt Disney had announced that he would build a huge theme park on the 160 acres of land he'd just bought in Orange County, California, and that he would make it the best of its kind in the world, the happiest place on earth. Well, he didn't disappoint. At a price of $17 million, which was a huge sum back then, he built a park of five themed lands and 20 attractions. By 2 a.m., the first of its first day's 50,000 guests began queuing outside the front gates. Can you imagine being there, in line, waiting for the first day of Disneyland to open? As a kid? It's 2 a.m., it's cold, and it's dark, and it feels like forever as you stand there waiting in the gloom. But then, finally, the dawn comes, and the sun peeps over the horizon and light starts glinting on those magical towers and the rooftops become bathed in sun and finally the doors of this city are thrown open and you and thousands of other people pour into it. The long dark wait through the night is over and now you're in the happiest place on earth. That's a big moment, right? You remember that one for the rest of your life. But now imagine this. You're in the same line waiting through the same night with the same ticket in your hand but when the doors open you decide not to go in that's a big moment too isn't it that's the day you're at the opening of Disneyland but decide not to go in it's the same day for everyone the 18th of July 1955 but whether it's the best day of your life or the worst depends entirely on whether you decide to go in or not well, last week saw Israel trapped in darkness. God had returned them home from exile and given them a second chance to live like they were meant to, but they'd wasted it. True, someone would come who would save them from their sin and selfishness, the servant, Jesus, but he's not come yet. So for now, Israel are still in gloom. They're sinful, they know they're sinful, and they're powerless to change. Well, Isaiah 60 comes like a sunrise on this scene. Look at 60 verses 1 to 2. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. 
see darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. The current Jerusalem may be in darkness, but God will build a new Jerusalem where sin will be over and everyone will love each other. A genuine happiest place on earth. And the sun is just beginning to rise and sparkle on its towers now. And he'll invite everyone to the opening day. But whether the opening day of the new Jerusalem will be the best day of their lives or the worst will depend entirely on what they do. Will they enter or refuse to enter? Well, that's the choice that God's people face in today's section of Isaiah, chapters 60 to 64. And it's the choice all of us face too. So let's get into it. Our first point, a new Jerusalem will open. God promises Israel that he will build them a new Jerusalem. And it will be amazing. It will be great. It will be full. And it will be forever. First of all, it will be great. It'll be wealthy. It'll be full of herds and gold and spices. Listen to how Isaiah describes it in 60 verses 5 to 7. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you, the riches of the nations will come. Herds and camels will cover your land, young camels of Midian and Ephah. And all from Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. All Kedah's flocks will be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth will serve you. They will be accepted as offerings on my altar, and I will adorn my glorious temple. This will be a wealthy city. It'll be a well-ruled city. Verse 17, peace will be its governor and well-being its ruler. And it will be a secure city. Its gates will be impregnable and invasion impossible. Verse 18, no longer will violence be heard in your land, nor ruin or destruction within your borders, but you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. This will be a great city. And it will be a full city. It'll be full of Israelites returned from exile. Look at verse 4. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar and your daughters are carried on the hip. But it will also be full of people from all around the world. The nations will flood into Jerusalem to serve them. Look at verses 10 and 11. Foreigners will rebuild your walls and their kings will serve you. Though in anger I struck you, in favour I will show you compassion. Your gates will always stand open. They will never be shut day or night so that people may bring you the wealth of the nations, their kings led in triumphal procession. This is the same thing there in verse 14. The children of your oppressors will come bowing before you. All who despise you will bow down at your feet and will call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. All the nations who've been oppressing Israel will come now and serve them as their servants in Jerusalem. But those same nations will also find sanctuary in Jerusalem themselves. Look at verse 3. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Verse 9. Surely the islands look to me in the lead of the ships of Tarshish, bringing your children from afar with their silver and gold. 
to the honor of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. This will be a great city full of wealth and security and good rule, but it will also be a full city full of Israelites, but also full of people from all over the world. And finally, it will be a forever city. All the ebbs and flows of history, which have so often caught Jerusalem up in its currents, will stop. This golden age will never end. Jerusalem will be the everlasting pride of all generations, verse 15. No longer will violence be in the land, verse 18. They'll possess this land forever, verse 21. God will build a new Jerusalem and it will be great and full and forever. In fact, the new Jerusalem will be so amazing that it becomes clear by the end of the chapter that Isaiah is not describing a merely earthly city at all. Look at verses 19 to 20. The sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun will never set again, and your moon will wane no more. The Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of sorrow will end. Isaiah says this city won't be lit by the sun or the moon, but by God himself. In other words, he's using this city as a symbol of a whole new creation that God is going to build. And the New Testament confirms that. When the Apostle John is describing what the new creation will be like, he quotes Isaiah 60. Calling it a new Jerusalem, he says, Revelation 21, verses 23 to 26, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. John and Isaiah promise that one day God will make a whole new creation, a new physical world that will be full of people and full of the glory of God. In Isaiah 60, God doesn't just promise to rebuild a city. He promises to rebuild the cosmos. And you know, that rebuilding is the ultimate hope of the Christian life. You know, Christians often think that the end point of the Christian life is heaven, the floaty place you go when you die. You know, you become a Christian and your sins are forgiven and you live the Christian life and then you die and your spirit goes to heaven and that's the end. That's the last stop on your journey. Now, it is true that when Christians die, our souls do go to a place called heaven where we will be in conscious, bodiless, blissful relationship with God. And that's where everyone who has died with Christ is now. But that's not the last place we go. It's the second last place. What the New Testament calls heaven is not the last stop for believers, but the waiting room for that last stop, the new creation. God has made us physical beings, so if we never ended up having bodies again after we died, just stayed as souls in heaven, there'd be something incomplete about our salvation. And so, God says, one day He will raise us physically to life and put us in a new physical world where we will live forever. That is the ultimate hope of the Christian. 
That's the hope Isaiah is pointing us to. Now, what exactly will this new creation look like? Well, we don't know. The Bible only gives us hints, talks about it in picture language, like he does in Isaiah 60. We know it will be physical in some way. It's pictured as a city. And when Jesus rose from the dead as the first part of this new creation, his body was physical. And we know it will be full of lots of people who will be in relationship with God. He'll be their light. But beyond that, we don't know. But we know it will be good. We know it will have everything we need and peace and safety. We know it will be full of people from every nation. And we know it will go on forever. It will never end. That's what awaits you if you're a Christian. Isn't that a great hope? You've got creaking joints. One day you'll get your body back and live in a place where there are no more creeks, where people run but don't grow faint. Is your life boring? Non-stop work, non-stop laundry? Well, one day it'll be great, rich and peaceful and secure. Are you lonely? The new creation will be full of people, all of them lovely. Are you scared by death? Worried by the transitory nature of life, how fast it's all going. Well, the new world will be forever, will never end. That's your hope. Now, of course, for some of us, this may all just seem too good to be true. Just wishful thinking, pie in the sky when you die. It's just too convenient that there could be life after death in a new world. But of course, whether it's convenient or not is not really the question. It's whether it's true. C.S. Lewis puts it so well when he says this. He says, we are very shy nowadays of even mentioning heaven, by which he means the new creation. We're afraid of the jeer about pie in the sky and of being told that we're trying to escape from the duty of making a happy world here into dreams of a happy world elsewhere. But either there is pie in the sky or there is not. If there is not, then Christianity is false, for this doctrine is woven into its whole fabric. But if there is, then this truth, like any other, must be faced, whether it's useful or not. So if you're not yet a Christian and you're sceptical about this claim, let me challenge you to face it and work it out for yourself. Come along to our Explore course. There's one starting straight after Easter. Come to church and ask hard questions. We would love to help you find out if this is true or not. Because if it's not, then there's nothing to worry about. But there's also nothing to hope for. But if it is, then there's a whole new world for you to explore and to live in forever. So come and check it out. God promises in Isaiah that one day he will create a new Jerusalem, a new world that will be great and full and forever. And that is great news. But how will we get into this new world? Well, the servant will let us in. Isaiah has already introduced us to the servant of the Lord, a figure who will forgive people their sin and give them peace with God. Now, for the last time in Isaiah, the servant speaks again, 
and says he will also let people into the new creation. Listen to Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 2. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Now we know that it's the servant speaking here because the Spirit of the Lord is on him and it's the servant who has the Spirit. We saw that when we first met him in chapter 42. And we know it's the new creation the servant is talking about here because of the language he uses. He will free prisoners from darkness, verse 1. The darkness that covers the whole world and that the new creation will dispel. And he calls this inbreaking of the new creation the year of the Lord's favour, 61 verse 2. And the servant can give people access to this new creation because he's paid for the sins that would keep them out of it. He told us in 53 verse 6, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. The servant suffers, and that brings us peace with God and the right to live with him forever. God has sent the servant to forgive people's sin, and so he can let people into the new creation when he comes. But you'll note here in chapter 61 that the servant doesn't just proclaim the year of the Lord's favour, he also proclaims the day of God's vengeance. 61 verse 2 again. He's come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God. You see, on the day when the new creation comes, God won't just save save those he favours, but also punish those he doesn't. That will be awful. He expands on what the day of God's vengeance will look like in chapter 63 verses 2 to 4. Why are your garments red? like those of one treading the winepress. I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. It was for me the day of vengeance, the year for me to redeem had come. You see, God is loving, but he's also holy. And because of that, he can't just let evil go unpunished. One day he has to stamp it out. And that's what the day of vengeance will do. The New Testament makes it clear he's talking about hell. When the Apostle John writes the most graphic description of hell in the Bible in Revelation 14, he quotes this part of Isaiah. That's awful. But hang on. If the servant has died for people's sin... Why will some people still suffer God's punishment on that day? Why is it that what will be the year of the Lord's favour for some people will be the day of God's vengeance for others? Hasn't the servant paid for all of that? Well, yes, he has. But the servant suffering for us only makes forgiveness available, not automatic. To be forgiven, God says you've got to ask God to forgive you on the basis of what the servant has done. You've got to choose to enter the new creation. 
So in Isaiah 64, Isaiah is talking to God on Israel's behalf, and he says this, 64 verse 1, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. In other words, that God would break into this creation and bring in the new one. 65 verse 3, For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But there's a problem. We've not done right. We've forgotten God's ways. 64 verse 5, but when, you continued to, when we continued to sin against you, you were angry. How then can we be saved? Well, he answers his own question in verse 8 by asking for forgiveness. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. And God can forgive them because of the servant. But Isaiah makes it clear they've got to ask. So that's the choice Israel face. Will they ask God for forgiveness or not? If they ask, it will be the start of the year of the Lord's favour for them. The moment they receive forgiveness now and get a ticket into the new creation when it comes. But if they don't, then it will be start of the day of God's vengeance for them. The moment they reject God's mercy now and get shut out of the new creation when it comes. And it's the choice we all face too. Jesus is preaching in the synagogue and he asks for the scroll of Isaiah. Luke 4 verse 17. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus declares that he is the servant. He is the one who proclaims the year of the Lord's favour, offers forgiveness for sins, an entrance into the new creation. He will be the one who suffers on the cross to pay for our sins and rise to life so we can rise to life too. And so because of that, he can offer tickets to the new creation. One day, a new creation will break in like a dawn on a dark world and anyone who wants to live there with him can come. But we've got to choose. We've got to ask for forgiveness if we want to be let in. Stories told of a small airline. On a four-hour flight, the hostess approached one of the passengers and asked him if he'd like to have dinner. What are my options, he asked. The hostess replied, yes or no. Well, they're the options. Yes or no? Eternal life or not? Choose life, won't you? And choose life now. 
because the offer of forgiveness in life won't last forever. Did you notice that when Jesus quotes Isaiah 61, he leaves the last bit of that quote off, the bit about the day of God's vengeance? It's as if he wants to focus on what he's come to offer now, the year of the Lord's favour, forgiveness and life. That's what he wants us to choose. But one day he will return to destroy evil and the time will have run out for us to accept that offer. So choose and choose now. God is going to build a new Jerusalem, a new creation, where there'll be no more sin or darkness and anyone can come and live. But to enter that new creation, you've got to choose. Admit your sin. Put your faith in the servant, Jesus. If you do, that will be the beginning of the year of the Lord's favour for you. The start of a whole new eternal life. But if you don't, it'll be the start of the day of the vengeance of God. It's a choice between heaven and hell. And Jesus holds the keys to both in his hands. Which will you choose? Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that because of what the servant Jesus has done for us on the cross, we can be forgiven. And because we can be forgiven, we can be allowed to live with you forever, not just in heaven, but in a whole new physical creation. Father, that will be wonderful. And Father, if we've already accepted forgiveness and got our ticket to that new creation, so to speak, Father, we pray that we might be comforted by that great future. And yet, Father, if we haven't put our faith in Jesus yet, Father, we pray that we would do it now. We'd do it soon. Because we know that the day of the Lord's vengeance will one day come, that we'll suffer for our sins. But that's not what you want for us. Now is the year of the Lord's favour. Now is the time to be forgiven. That's what you want for us. And we pray that all of us would have that now. We pray all of these things for your glory and for our joy. Amen.